0: It's really powerful when you can put an app together in, in a few hours or, or days because you have all this open source code to rely on. Um, and so when we talk about the software supply chain, we're, we're basically talking about where does all this code come from, like who writes it, how can we trust it, what build servers are used when we build the code, kind of how does it get all the way from kind of where it's produced to when it's in a final kind of artifact in the app You know, that, that you're building. And then how do you make sure that it's safe?
1: A book of DJ. Thanks for having me here. You recently launched a new tool, which is uh, Socket And and uh, wanted to have you on to, to introduce yourself. Tell us uh, sort of who you are and how you got here, and then we'll get into the product you launched recently.
0: Yeah, so I'm uh, an open source maintainer. Uh, that's kind of how I introduce myself. Uh, I spent um, probably like the last eight or nine years working on various open source projects in the JavaScript world. So I um, I kind of got started back in 2013, 2014 days, I don't know, kind of early days of Node.js, I guess. Yeah, um, it was a good time. It was a fun time back then. Lots of um, modules <laughs> being written, lots of sort of problems to solve. And uh, I, I got really kind of interested in, in uh, BitTorrent and peer-to-peer protocols. And I kind of got obsessed with this, uh, this idea of making torrents work in a web browser. Uh, so I started this project called WebTorrent to do that. And, you know, it's, it's been something I've been working on for, you know, I worked on for, for many years after, uh, you know, I, after I started it and kind of like, it became this big, <laughs> this big project where, uh, just, there was so much, there's so many different parts to, to build out. And, uh, and so kind of ended up writing different NPM packages in the process and, uh, splitting the project up into all these nice, uh, kind of independently, you know, uh, separated packages. And then that's kind of how I just kind of accidentally found myself as a, as a an open source person, an open source maintainer of different things, and uh, it's been kind of fun being, uh, you know, doing it uh, and, and being an open source person. <laughs> Are you still maintaining WebTorrent? So I don't actually actively code too much on WebTorrent, um, but it is it is still actively maintained. There's other people now who help out um, and and work on it. It's definitely, I think, still one of the coolest torrent. Apps out there because it does work in a browser, and the 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 desktop app has like a really really nice user experience. So you can just drop in a torrent and it'll stream it. So it's yeah, it's definitely uh, worth checking out. Still, very cool. Yeah, I mean that's that's a (laughs) a pretty awesome way
1: to sort of find your way into sort of open source and and some like serious programming. Mm -hmm. And also like like, there's got to be a lot of value you drew from having folks using the thing that you, you built. And then also, even attracting other contributors. So, like you mentioned 2013, 2012, 2013, when he started. Like, we we actually had um, uh, the Astro founder, Fred, on for episode 55. Oh, Fred is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know you've crossed paths with him. I've definitely seen you all in the same rooms before, but he uh, also came through very early Node ecosystem and sort of like figuring things out. And um, I also started, I didn't start contributing to Node back then, but That's also when I started writing Node code as well, and uh, getting the server-side JavaScript, which was like mind-blowing because I knew of JavaScript as jQuery, (laughs) in the browser for like the longest time. And then someone told me, "Hey, actually, you know, surprisingly enough, I was working on a Socket thing, (laughs) which I know uh, it was actually Socket.io was what I I ended up sort of introducing myself in the Node code and why I sort of started writing it. But Socket.dev is a little different. And uh, can you give us like an explanation of like what is Socket.dev?
0: Yeah, so socket.dev is a tool to help you secure your open source supply chain. Uh, and so maybe I should define what the, what all that is. So um, so, so yes, a software supply chain is this idea of kind of all of the component parts that make up your application. Uh, and so, you know, the term kind of comes from you know, factories kind of the, from the real world where you have all these parts that you pull together and produce, you know, some some Physical, physical good uh, from uh, but in the software world you know we we have usually open source components making up our apps uh, and you know most apps are about 90 95 percent of the lines of code are open source in in the average app um, and so you know most apps are really built on the shoulders of, of giants I guess it's really powerful when you can Put an app together in in a few hours or or days because you have all this open source code to rely on. Um, And so, when we talk about the software supply chain, we're we're basically talking about kind of where where does all this code come from? Like who writes it? How do how can we trust it? What build servers are used when we build the code? Kind of how does it get all the way from kind of where it's produced to where you know when it's in a final kind of artifact in the app? You know that that you're you're building, Um, and and how do you make sure that it's that it's safe?
1: Yeah, and it's like something that's been in conversation for a while in JavaScript, at least. And uh, as we see more vulnerabilities in Node packages, and even recently we had a, a Node package software who shipped vulnerable, not vulnerable code, but interesting code uh, through the supply chain. <laughs> and then folks were sort of uh, confused uh, when they woke up. But yeah, I don't know if we, we want to talk about that situation and maybe how Socket would like remedy that situation in the future.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the situation, I mean, I think you calling it interesting is a little bit uh, generous of you. Um, yeah, this maintainer, this actually happened pretty recently back in January of this year. There was a maintainer who had two popular packages, one called Colors and the other called Faker. And both of those together, I think, got around 100 million downloads a month. So, very popular packages, very widely used by the ecosystem. And uh, yeah, one day he just woke up and decided, you know, I'm not happy with how companies are using my code uh, without paying me, which is, you know, that's a whole separate conversation, I think. But anyway, he decided to, to sabotage his own code and basically fill it with spam messages that would get printed out and random Unicode characters and then also kind of like infinite loops and stuff like that that kind of made it. You know, just change, completely changed the behavior of the package so that it's just kind of like, what's what going on here? Yeah. And um, Amazon's uh, CLI tool um, you know, was using one of these packages and so it ended up kind of, pe- people who used the tool that day, who installed it that day, got the new version of colors that he published as one of their dependencies and then you know, using this Amazon CLI they kind of thought, whoa, Amazon might be hacked because what is all this uh, weird output I'm seeing when I run the Amazon CLI? And so a lot of companies that use this this code were actually affected by basically but by the way, that the dependencies are are installed in Node, where you kind of you specify like these loose kind of version identifiers with the caret symbol or the tilde symbol that kind of allows any version that you know any new patch or minor versions to get um, installed automatically. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that was kind of a really interesting recent case. But there's been so many more too. It's not just you know that that case. You know, back if you just go back a couple more months in November and October of last year, there were several other supply chain attacks against NPM. Those ones were a little bit different. So those packages were hijacked or um, taken over by some random attacker. The way that it happened was Pretty interesting because uh, you know there was this maintainer who is totally uh, you know trying to do the right thing you know a maintainer of packages that were widely used widely respected really good packages but uh, I, I believe he, he may have reused his password his npm password on other websites and when one of those other websites got breached that that's kind of what it looks like happened was because there was this post on our, on our Russian hacking forum two weeks before. His packages were compromised. Basically, saying, "Hey, I have the password of an npm maintainer with uh, seven million weekly downloads. Uh, I'll I'll give it to whoever pays me twenty thousand dollars." And then two weeks after that, it's a maintainer who has a package that gets seven million weekly downloads was compromised. So it just seems like that's probably what happened there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and that was that was a bad one. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is a yeah. This is like I guess for
1: a company like Amazon to be affected. I know it wasn't like literally Amazon servers, but it was the CLI itself and like Mm -hmm. having so many users for the CLI that depends on these packages and this package depending on another package. I can see where like the value of understanding the supply chain, but also protecting against stuff like that would be top of mind for JavaScript developers. So, like Mm -hmm. uh, you had mentioned in passing about the funding thing, and that's like I know it's another rabbit hole in conversation, but I know you have a a history in in funding and, and attempts to sort of like. Sustain yourself and your your open source as well. Like the state of funding right now in open source is that a big security vulnerability for a lot of packages because maintainers might not be getting paid enough or not be not getting paid anything for, to support AWS CLIs.
0: I think it's part of the problem. it's definitely not the full problem. I mean um, you know so the, the part of the problem that funding is responsible for it's actually quite similar to, to the Chrome extension ecosystem actually. Um, so in Chrome extensions you'll see there's a lot of these extensions that are made by um, individuals for fun and put out there and then they end up kind of accruing millions and millions of installs. And you know the person who maintains it may want to you know work on it, more, but they have probably they might have a day job. They might have other things going on in their life, and uh, they they also find it pretty hard to monetize you know these extensions because people aren't used to paying for extensions, just like how people aren't used to paying for open source. And so what will happen is sometimes bad actors will will reach out to a Chrome extension you know owner and and say hey you know I, I'd like to buy your Chrome extension for you know fifty thousand dollars or you know something like that twenty five thousand dollars and you know this person who's never made a cent from their Chrome extension and is honestly maybe kind of tired of you know, getting users complaining <laughs> to them for you know for years and years um, may just say, "Hey, you know what? Like that's actually a great idea. This company can take it off my hands and give me you know give me some money for it." And uh, often, though, the, the company will immediately turn around and put ads or tracking code into the extension, which is obviously the reason why they're buying it. And so you know open source has a kind of a similar problem where a maintainer who you know may not be using their their package anymore that they wrote they may have written it at a previous job that they're not working at anymore they may have written it just for fun put it out there and then kind of accidentally found themselves now the maintainer of like a really important or really popular package um, you know someone like that who just doesn't have the time that the package needs to to do a good job with it you know may be very receptive when someone reaches out and says hey i'd like to help maintain this package you know with you because we're using it at my company and you know you're not really responding to issues and that's actually kind of a great thing that's great that's how open source works it's how people you know people share access with each other pretty um liberally especially if 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 someone's done a good job contributing in the past and i'm not saying that's bad i think that's actually awesome but there's a bit of a risk that comes from that that issue and and um one of the most prominent uh, attacks that happened was called Event Stream, in, back in 2018, and that was exactly what happened. Was uh, Dominic Tar, um, uh, you know, pr- prolific maintainer stopped using one of his packages and hadn't been maintaining it, and someone just reached out and said, "Hey, uh, you know, I'll, um, I'd love to help you." And he said, "Yeah, sure." And I don't think funding would have helped in that case. That's the thing where I say it's kind of part of the problem. Yeah, I think if people could really make a full time living doing open source, maybe they wouldn't just give away their packages. Maybe they'd want to kind of. Professionalize a little bit around how they maintain it because they're making a living from it. But um, yeah, I think it's only part of the problem. I don't think it would really kind of fully solve things. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, so personally, and we talk off air on the thing I'm working on uh, in the future. But I, I think the other sort of not solution, but it would help the the problem is finding other folks who are contributing code and like to be able to trust who you're handing the code off to. Because I know with the event stream it was sort of like he was done with writing the code. It wasn't a thing that it was like his. Day job or like interest, but being able to validate people in the ecosystem through like historical commits or contributions or just sort of like attached to a real profile, it would make a lot of those decisions a lot easier if you could sort of trace like where who's sort of like where these verif- verified commits are coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to the supply chain, I'm curious. There's a few other sort of security scanning tools. So like, how does Socket. Dev differ from those?
0: Yeah, yeah, great question. So if you think about how do you actually stop supply chain attacks, right? What would be a, a way to actually, if you were trying to solve this problem, how would you stop the next supply chain attack? It helps to look back and see, well, what did the previous supply chain attacks do? You know, what were the indicators that these packages may have been compromised? So if you just think about the ones we've already mentioned so far, what did EventStream do? Well, EventStream was one of the trickiest packages because and maybe we won't start with EventStream. That's actually a harder case. Let's start with um the ones that were compromised in October and November. So one of those packages was called UA Parser JS. So it's a user agent a string parser. It parses the you know browser user agent string, tells you what browser um, the user is using. Um, so a package like that you know doesn't need access to the file system. It doesn't need to talk to the network. It doesn't need to run run shell commands. Right? It's a very simple package. It doesn't need these kind of powerful c- capabilities. Yeah. And what we saw when it was compromised was a, a new version was published. Actually, three three new versions were published uh, because they wanted to kind of get it, as many people to install them as possible. But if you look at those versions, they contain all this code that that uses all these new platform capabilities that weren't used in the previous versions. And so one kind of very obvious thing to look for is does a package suddenly start using permissions or capabilities, uh, powerful features in the platform that it didn't use before? Specifically ones that are security relevant, such as running shell commands, running an install script, talking to the network, reading files, right? And so that's that's something where we can, you know, we can just look at new versions and say, "Hey, you know what? This version's introduced Um, this new behavior, and that's probably something that a human should look at and and be able to answer the question, well, why all of a sudden does my user agent parser need to run shell commands? That doesn't make any sense, right? So that's a thing where we think when the developer goes to update that package to a new version, Socket can come in, leave a comment on the pull request and say, hey, by the way, in case you didn't notice, this package is now doing these things that uh, are worth a look. And that helps the reviewer figure out that, that this is worth a look because most people, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not uh, going out on a limb here when I say probably most teams are not clicking through, you know, when they see a package lock file was changed. They're probably not going and doing research to see what, what actually changed inside those packages. It's just not, it's not a practical thing to do. Nah. Yeah, I did for a while. Uh, back when I first included Dependabot into my
1: package, uh, I entered my projects because I was like, "Oh, cool! I could look at the code and look at the release notes." And then after a while, it's like, "Oh, it's Dependabot Day!" Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess we're just gonna, gonna merge these things in. But so, are these comments inferred from folks disclosing? These changes, or is this all through automation or machine learning or something fancy like that?
0: Yeah, so it's it's not machine learning, although we may use that at some point. It's it's right now. It's just uh, static analysis. So it's you can think of it kind of like a linter. So we're we're running an automatic analysis of every npm package that's published. So we we have a, a pipeline that we've built that kind of analyzes all these packages in the past, all the ones that are published, you know, in the past, as well as real in real time the new ones that are being published. And when we see a new uh, package version, we just sort of check for we have a list of sixty things we check for in the package that it may be doing, uh, and then we can annotate that package with these basically these uh, we call them issues. They're basically like potential red flags. That, that package version has and so you can go to socket.dev and just look up a package right now and just see like you know what issues the package has that our analysis has found and uh, get an idea of the kind of thing we can find the kind of things we can find um, we've already found some pretty interesting stuff by the way just using like this basic just looking for basic things with static analysis such as like an angular calendar component which you know you Think would be pure web code, but it's actually doing all the things I said earlier: shell, file system, network, um, install scripts. You know, uh, and, and it's it's actually kind of that's actually kind of an interesting case because that package it's not malicious; it's gathering data about who is using the package and sending it to the maintainer so that the maintainer can kind of it's almost like Google Analytics for open source, yeah. which is kind of a it's not I would say it's not outright malware, but it's it's also it's not something that probably a lot of people realize their open source might be doing. And so I think it's useful to be able to go look it up on socket and see, hey, we've actually tagged this package as doing all these things. And also we've even tagged it as using telemetry. So we can yeah. sort of summarize all these things and say this is actually just phoning home. It's, you know, it has telemetry in it. Yeah. Yeah, even just that one
1: feature of just identifying telemetry and like letting me know, hey, this package actually is sending your data back to wherever. Like it's enough for me to be con- not concerned, but sort of raise an eyebrow. And like, you know, what am I using this for? And is this a place? It's so like, for example, if I'm working, I, I was working some tools, some CLI tools that were. Deployed to GitHub packages and used some npm packages, but like it was, it was just sort of like looking at data, um, all public data. But I did, it was like pre GitHub Actions, so I was like taking a look at everybody who didn't have GitHub Actions and reaching out to those owners of those uh, repos and be like, hey, Actions is a thing. What can I do to get you to use it? Type of deal. And in my dev row role, it's like ah, it kind of feels like very salesy. So we had a very lockdown on private repo. But if I have telemetry that's going back to one of those packages I'm using, it's like looks like GitHub's looking at CI basically, right? Because uh, it was pre the CI change, then that that raises word flags of like, oh man, is someone going to like look into be duggies. <laughs> libraries and stuff like that and like figure out what new features are coming out of github <laughs> so right, right. And maybe that's just a little paranoia for me but the Telemergy feature would be very useful for me for that reason
0: yeah I also realized I, I didn't uh, I didn't answer your question fully yet about kind of how is socket different from the other code scanning tools oh yeah yeah so I mean I think I think if you if you look at other stuff out there, like Dependabot is a good example, right? Dependabot, when it finds a security issue, what it's really doing is comparing the package version that you're using in the project to a public database of known vulnerabilities. And so a known vulnerability is when a security researcher finds a bug in an open source project, and this bug has a security implication. You know, it may be exploitable by somebody. So the security researcher writes up a report, uh, sends it to the maintainer so the maintainer can get it fixed. And then that report gets filed with um, this thing called the NVD or the National Vulnerability Database, which is actually run by the US federal government. And that uh, vulnerability is assigned a number, um, uh, like an identifier called called the CVE. And what tools like Dependabot or Sneak do is they basically just tell you, hey, you're running a version of a package which, which is known to, to, to have vulnerable code in it based on what we found in this in this database. And so I would say it's definitely a good thing to do, uh, but it's pretty reactive because it requires someone to kind of go and find this security issue and report it, get it added to the database, and then the, the tool can kind of warn you that you're that you're using it. And these types of things that, that are reported in the database are primarily kind of accidents that the maintainer put in the, you know, put in the code. Whereas you know, what we're seeing a lot more in the headlines these days is, are not accidental vulnerabilities, but actually outright malware where someone's actually compromised a package, someone's actually taken it over, right? They they the the maintainer reused their password. Now some attacker has has control of it and they're gonna just put malware in there. You know, if, if they do that, then what happens is anyone who installs the package. For you know the next day or two until until this issue is discovered, right, is going to just get this malware on their computer, yeah. and, and that's actually exactly what happened with with UA Parser JS back in in October of of last year. Was there was a cryptocurrency miner added, which mined cryptocurrency, uh, you know, stole your re- CPU resources and also stole all your all your passwords on your computer, and you know that was not in this database of vulnerabilities because that was that was just not like a that was not a, a thing. This is basically like you know. If a package is suddenly published, how do you know if it was published a couple of hours ago or, or yesterday? How do you know if it's safe? Looking up, you know, vulnerabilities in the vulnerability database, you're very unlikely to find some vulnerability published about a package that was published, you know, hours ago. It's just not. That's just not the speed at which. Yeah. And so that's kind of what Socket's trying to find is. If you look at the actual code, you can analyze it and see what is it going to do, right? Is this thing going to do something to my computer when I install it that I should know about? And if so, why, do, why doesn't npm prompt? the user, why doesn't it say, hey, this code is about to do these things, almost like the way when you install a smartphone app um, and it wants to access your camera or your contacts, it can't just do that, it has to ask you. right? So that's kind of what Socket's trying to do, is like, well, why don't we tell people up front what this package is going to do, right? And then later on, also, if a new version comes out and it's now doing this new thing, well, they should have to basically disclose that or or the user should be prompted that this package is now doing this new thing, just like it would on a smartphone app. And so that's kind of the difference between Socket and, and these other... Older school tools. Okay, yeah,
1: that makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, sort of leading the charge on trying to improve supply chain security, but uh, approaching it in a different manner too as well, because. Uh, I don't want to look through all the sort of updates. And like it took me a long time to even just update packages on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. So now that I'm actually doing that, <laughs> I don't want to have to go through and also look, read every single one of these release notes. Uh, so we can have some sort of tooling and automation, which I understand. Socket you can install on in a GitHub repo. Is that the sort of introduction?
0: Yeah, so you don't have to, you know, like you you were doing before, you said you were looking at all the changes for a while there, and then you kind of got tired and stopped doing it, which is totally understandable. I think with Socket, you can install our GitHub app, and then for the most part, if a version update has good release notes, it seems good, and your tests pass, you can merge those and not worry about them. And then when Socket calls out a particular update as being interesting in some way because it's you know the behavior's changed, um, you can dig deeper into those ones. But that's going to be a much smaller percentage of your updates. It'll hopefully you know won't be too many, and you can devote your, your limited attention to the packages that are most likely to to have issues, and and then just kind of not worry about the rest. Um, since most teams right now aren't aren't even checking anything for any of their updates, so yeah. Socket says, how, how about instead of like. Just literally doing nothing. How about you? Just let's start with like putting some attention on the ones that seem suspicious. You know.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Well, I mean, yeah. Congratulations on the launch, and uh, looking forward to actually. I'm going to start testing it out in some some repos on my own to get some feedback on because I've got some some repos I heavily write code in, but then also I take a lot of open source contributions as well. So every now and then, I had like a UI component library slip in when someone solved a, a UI problem, and I was like, ah. Wasn't ready to, to add this to the project yet, but here it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so like things like that is it, it's nice to have some sort of security, I guess, socket security, if, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so uh, anything else you want to add to the conversation for folks who are listening before we jump over the picks?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention one other cool thing um, that people can find if they go to the website, um, if they go to socket.dev. Because I mentioned we're, we're following NPM, so we're kind of downloading all the... Um, Packages as they're published. When malware is discovered on npm and it's reported, and npm takes it down, we actually get to see that that happened. And because of that, we actually have this nice sample now of like known malware or, or, or packages that had had security issues. It's just interesting to look through it. So we decided to kind of host what we've collected, not to like serve it for people to download it or, or to run it, uh, but just kind of just to read it on our website. Um, and you can. If you go to the footer of of socket.dev and you click on removed packages, you can actually browse through these removed packages, and it's just really it's interesting to see kind of like what does the malware do? Like what is yeah you know what is the stuff that's getting taken down actually trying to do to your computer if you were to install it? And there's just some there's some crazy stuff in there. Like some of it's really straightforward. Like it just grabs your process.env, which is your all your environment variables, and then it just sends an HTTP GET request off to some server with all your tokens. But then other stuff is like these these giant blobs of just obfuscated code that it's just like a wall of like completely gibberish stuff and you're like okay (laughs) I don't know what this does but I probably don't want to install this Um, and then there's some stuff on there that's just spam like people are using are just posting like Spam links to like you know random spam sites on npm to I think just to get their links in the readme on the website and so those would get taken out so you can just see kind of like what is the, what's out there and there's there's hundreds of these every week that are published and then removed by npm so it's just interesting to see and 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 we're also reporting the stuff we find to npm and getting it getting it taken down uh, and we plan to keep doing that in the future so yeah it's just interesting if people want to kind of check that out and um, play around with it it's all the data is there it's open for people to access. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah. Uh I'm actually really intrigued too as well. I I, I don't want to look at release notes, but I'm actually intrigued to see like what people are actually doing. Like, I don't token myself as a security researcher or anything like that, but I'd have some cycles on a Friday to go read and and thumb through some of this stuff. So uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That would make a great newsletter though. Just throwing that <laughs> out there. Just post like interesting tidbits like here's what we found this week. For sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure that'd be on Hacker News at like at least once a week for sure. Maybe not front page, but it'll be on Hacker News. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, appreciate the conversation for us. Uh, we're going to transition the picks. So these are jam picks, things that we're jamming on. It could be music, food, code related, uh, all of the above. And I actually see you already have some picks in there. So do you want to go ahead and go first?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, I recommend people check out the podcast Darknet Diaries. Have you heard of this one, by the way? Uh, actually, I'm a, I'm an avid listener.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's so it's so good, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, honestly, like working at a company as as GitHub and seeing the acquisition of Microsoft, and then also seeing like all these sort of I don't maybe I shouldn't disclose, but yeah, definitely seeing like pen testing type emails come through my inbox, and then having the head of security be like, "Hey, I saw you open that thing," like. That is absolutely fascinating stuff, and like stuff. I only come from startups, so like GitHub's the biggest company I ever worked for. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now my brain is turning on. Like, oh, you know, what? I'm never opening any more emails, <laughs> and <our>, uh, are <laughs> I don't want to ever like I don't want to be the person who has like the the same password in, in multiple places. So like, did a whole cleanup. But yeah, please proceed. Uh, we didn't even <laughs> explain what the, uh, the the podcast is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll explain it. So, so Darknet Diaries is basically all these. Uh, their tagline is "True Stories from the Dark Side of the Internet." And it's basically just this fascinating glimpse into, you know, internet crime and kind of like what hackers are up to. So they'll interview a lot of, uh, of hackers and have them talk about the various um, kind of, I guess, I guess, crimes that they did, right? And a lot of the people they interview have been caught and like have already sort of kind of served their time. And so they kind of can talk about it now. And you'll hear like just all, all the kind of stuff that they, that they did and kind of the, the details of their of their various uh uh, shenanigans. And then also they'll interview like security professionals. And one of the things that I love uh, learning about on that show uh, f- by listening to the show is that there's some people who have a job to be a f- basically a physical pen tester where they'll actually, their job is to break into buildings. So companies will hire them and say like t- test our security and also our physical security. And uh, so like there's literally people whose job it is to break into banks for a living. And, you know, they have these, like, little notes, like, p- printed out papers that say if they get caught or arrested, they can take this, like, paper out of their pocket that says, like, actually, here's a letter from, like, the CISO, the head of security, saying that, like, they paid me to break into the building, so, like, please don't <laughs> arrest me and call this phone number to, like, confirm with the, the the security person that I'm supposed to be here, right? And they're supposed to, like, pull that out if they get in trouble. And there's But there's all these stories that they have of, like, people who, who where that went wrong and, like, they got arrested and then, like, it didn't go well, the pr- they didn't believe the letter or whatever happened. Happened. And and so I don't know. It's just a really like interesting part of the like security world that I had no no idea about really before uh, listening to the show. So it's it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it keeps me paranoid. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been in the office in a long time,
1: but definitely the whole follow through or, or I forgot my badge type of stuff. It's like ah, I've seen this show before. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the front desk.
0: Right. Yeah. It definitely helps you up your game. It, it gives you a little bit of the paranoid mindset that you really need to to have to. To do security well, you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, and you had another pick. Yeah, I got one other pick. This is also a security one. Um, there's this this podcast called uh, Risky Biz. Uh, it's just a security weekly security news show. So if people are interested in the security industry, they want to learn a little bit more about kind of like what you know what what is going on, kind of like what what are the big news items of the week, what are the top hacks, kind of what um, new stuff is happening. Um, It's just a great little recap show to listen to. It's just, uh, they just kind of summarize the news of the week. Uh, And um, it's been really helpful for me to listen to um, and just kind of get a nice summary of of what, what do I need to know this week in security. Okay, cool. Not JavaScript specific at all. Not not Jamstack specific. It's just kind of like broadly. It's they talk a lot about ransomware these days. That's kind of the big one that's yeah affecting everybody. That's kind of one of the <laughs> recurring topics on the show right now. Yeah, I um,
1: <laughs> not a pick, but I did get um, stuck into like the Mark Rober series where there's like the two guys. One does streaming where he picks up the phone with the scammers. Oh yeah. And like like answers a question but in like an old lady voice. <laughs> Honestly, I'm blanking on who the guy is, but I'm sure it, everybody listening is probably thinking, "Oh, it's this guy." But Mark Rober is a YouTuber who um, he's like a electrical engineer. Um, and he like builds a lot of inventions and he built like a box for like uh, Amazon packages. He puts basically he gets a a box as if it's like a package outside your door and then uh, there's a porch pirates, I guess is what they call him. He actually has like a spinning glitter bomb fart spray thing. Uh, so like <laughs> if someone steals a package and opens it up in their house, like they get a bunch of glitter and and uh, like a fart spray spraying. And then the the actual box has a GPS tracker, so he goes and picks it up when they they, they throw it in the trash. Uh, but it's like a little fun, and uh, definitely watch like pretty much every one of those <laughs> uh, YouTube videos on that. So uh, they did like a combo effort where they call the scammers and then track down the folks who are doing these sort of the ransomware type stuff of trying to get Bitcoin out of of old folks, and uh, which kind of summarizes what what's really happening. Mm-hmm. But let's just call that a pick. Uh, YouTube glitter bomb ransomware. Uh, just Google that, and you'll, uh, you'll you'll find what I'm talking about. But I did have another pick, which is the Burr coffee grinder. Do you drink coffee frost? Yes, a lot, too much. <laughs> okay, yeah. so I mean, being in an office, like you I didn't realize, but the, most of them in San Francisco have like burr coffee grinders. and like the way it works is the normal like spice grinder, which is like a blade, a flat blade that chops up the beans or spices or whatever, apparently not supposed to uh, use that for coffee because it doesn't really chop up the coffee or grind the coffee properly. But a burr grinder is like this like flat disc and it has like angled blades and it gives you like a more consistent grind <laughs> of the coffee. And um, it actually does make a difference. Like I feel, I feel like one cup of coffee is enough if I use a burr grinder and I've only been using it for two days. And well, ironically, I've been using it for years at work, but at home I've always had like the garbage, like $20 Amazon spice blender. So... I do recommend actually jumping to the burr grinder. It's a little more expensive than a normal coffee grinder, but uh definitely worth the flavor for sure. And I'm I'm a black coffee drinker, so like full flavor, I got to taste the beans.
0: Right. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I've been I've been kind of going hard on the espresso. Cause I, I I just, it's just quick and easy, but I I used to grind the beans and and do the whole French press thing. But, um, now just to save time, I'm, I'm doing, uh, Nespresso's. Okay. That, that works, you know, pick, pick your poison, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) it's not, it's not as tasty. It's definitely not as tasty. I did have a
1: Keurig for like a short amount of time and, um, it would just never, never got to the same. Palette level that I was looking for like being in San Francisco like we we are a little bit spoiled when it comes to coffee so like once you taste the goodness you did you can't go back to the regular stuff
0: oh yeah no I mean Keurig is nothing compared to the Nespresso you got at least Nespresso is the bare minimum I think but (laughs) we are spoiled in San Francisco you can't you can't really find bad coffee unless you go to like I don't know, like a gas station or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's just true. And sometimes you can even be surprised there as well. Yeah. It's a Sometimes it can be like another level depending on the, uh, some of the, the sort of small corner stores, at least here in Oakland could have some pretty good, pretty good coffee on, on deck for sure. But Frost, again, thanks so much for the conversation about security and socket as well. And also like this, the conversation in general, like I think I learned a ton about sort of things I could probably think about in sort of my supply chain security. So, uh, best of luck with the, the new, the new launch. And, uh, Listeners keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of
0: developer tools companies and other industry leaders.